bring greetings from our senior minister, Colin Dye. He's going to be back with us next Sunday. Uh, currently, he's been toing and froing from Marseille to Paris and then back again. As many of you know, we have a church in Paris, a Kensington Temple Church in Paris. And we also have a Bible school and training center in Marseille. So that's where he is. So uh, keep him in your prayers and he'll be back with us uh, next Sunday. Um, this evening at the 7 o'clock uh, Holy Spirit ministry service, as well as being open to the move of the Spirit and to minister to people as the Holy Spirit leads us, I'm going to be speaking on Isaac and the fruit of the Spirit. We'll be spending some time in Galatians, <clears throat> chapter, end of chapter 4 and chapter 5, where we see that the fruit of the Spirit and the works of the flesh come out of the story of Isaac and Ishmael. And uh, what, what happens is, is that Paul gives a story and he says, well, who are you? Do you want to be of Isaac or do you want to be of Ishmael? And he says, you're sons of the promise. And he tells the story, an allegory. And then out of that allegory, we get into understanding the works of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. And I think that Isaac is a wonderful picture of somebody that is exhibiting the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the way that he deals with situations in his life. We can see the fruit of the Spirit at work. In fact, sometimes you look at Isaac, and at first glance you might wonder, well, he's, he's not really as exciting. His story is not quite as exciting as Abraham's, and his story is not quite as exciting as Jacob. And out of the, you know, the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you, you might think, but I wonder whether that's partly because he walked in the fruit of the Spirit, if I can use an, a New Testament term for an Old Testament lifestyle, more than those other two. I mean, if you take out all the struggles, all the things that Jacob did in the flesh in order to inherit the, the problem, if you took out all of that, his time with Laban, his problems with his brother, his, his, his pulling one over on Isaac, trying to be like his... If you take all the striving out of Jacob's story, I wonder what would be left. What if he'd walked in the Spirit? And even... Abraham, who is the model of faith for us, I mean, a, a lot of his story was also his mistakes, and uh, he had his Ishmael, didn't he? He went up to Egypt when perhaps he should have stayed in the promised land, and it was when he went up to Egypt that all his problems started. So I think when we look at Isaac, we see that he faced some critical situations in his life, and he had family problems. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all had problems, you know, in their marriages or their family, family's life. And he had his problems, but it, the way that he dealt with them, I believe, is a picture of a child of the promise marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And the reason that we're going to be looking at that tonight at the 7 o'clock service is because I believe that God wants to give the church new levels of authority and power. And I'm absolutely convinced about it. But mercifully, I believe, he hasn't yet given it. Because when you look at Isaac and, the, and the, the blessing that was on his life and the authority and the wealth and the power that he had and that God gave in him, I think if God increased the authority of many Christians and ministers today, uh, they don't have the sufficient fruit of the Spirit to be able to carry that type of authority. They'll end up messing up, destroying themselves, destroying others. So I really believe that God in these days is doing a work in the hearts of believers uh, so that we can carry what God wants to bring to us. So that's tonight, and there'll be ministry and laying on of hands and prayer as the Holy Spirit leads us. But today we have the second in this uh, series on looking at Jesus as a model discipler. 
Uh, we've used the title uh, Jesus the Cell Leader. Now, you know, I know cell leader is a little bit of a modern, church, a modern, a modern word, but Jesus had his 12. And um, we're modeling this series, or basing it on, a book by Robert E. Coleman called The Master Plan of Evangelism. And we've got some of these available if you want to follow this up. And this is the abridged version. And the reason that we're doing this is we think it's a good idea for us to study the leadership, leadership strategy and methods of Jesus. Uh, nothing Jesus did was by accident. Do you know that? You could, if you just flicked through the Gospels, you, you might think it's just some sort of random walking around, oh, there's a demon, cast it out, there's somebody that needs healing, heal the person, preach the Gospel. And you might just think it's sort of like, you know, some country bumpkin from the north of Galilee going around with the fishermen just, just having a Holy Ghost party. But everything that Jesus did had purpose and strategy. In fact, he didn't do anything of his own, but everything that he did, he first saw the Father doing it. And so for us as a church, we are a cell church. We are unashamedly a cell church. We've got a lot to learn about small groups, but we believe that cells, just like cells in the physical body, are the basic unit of life, so we believe that cells are the basic unit of church life. And we do believe that true discipleship can only be done in a mentoring capacity. And Jesus was a great mentor. He spent more time with 12 men than he did anybody else. And in fact, the nearer he, nearer he got to his time of glorification, the less he spent with the crowds and the more he spent with these 12 men. Why? What was he doing? Surely, he would have been happy just to minister to the multitudes. I mean, nobody could attract a crowd like Jesus. And, and surely that would have been enough. That would have been enough for many ministers today to have the crowds that Jesus did. And, and sometimes that we've seen in church history that some ministers and preachers have commanded the crowds, but when, the, when they've gone, the crowds go with them. Do you know what I'm saying? And uh, how much time do they spend doing what Jesus did. Where's there? It doesn't have to be 12, but where's the people they mentored, the people that they, they imparted, those that took what God had on their lives, got close to them, associated with them, and, and carried it on. So I think this is really important, especially as well, seen as uh, many of us in this church are cell leaders. We've got cell leaders for women, men, and youth, and so I want to encourage you, if you're a cell leader, if you're not yet a cell leader, praying that one day you will be, so that you can be affirmed and encouraged to know that you, you being a cell group leader, even if you've, if you've got one or two or three members at the moment, I want to affirm you in this series to say you're right on course. You're doing exactly what God wants us to do. He called us all to make disciples. And, and we can learn from Jesus. He was the greatest cell leader of all time. That cell group of 12 that he mentored would take the world by storm. And so today we're going to talk a little bit about why Jesus selected uh, these 12, his purpose and how he trained them up and what that means for us today. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 9. And verse 35, we touched on this last week, but there's a, a great secret here of Jesus' strategy and Jesus' heart. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. 
Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with exaltation because he had made it in the ministry. No, thank you. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to the disciples, look, look at the harvest. Can you see? It's plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Levius, whose name was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out. I wanted just to speak their names, because these were real people in a real mentoring group. And it's not by accident that we see Jesus' concern for the multitudes turning to his focus on the twelve. He sees these multitudes and he says, look, but isn't this interesting? It's a big crowd, but it's a scattered crowd. You know, it's interesting when you look at how crowds form and why crowds will come together, whether they're coming for a great uh, music artist or band or whether they're gathering together for a great football event, or, or even if they're gathering together for a great Christian event. And the question being, for whom and for what are they actually gathered? And sometimes when you see that crowd gathered, uh, it appears that that crowd are one, but that crowd can so easily be scattered. And Jesus saw the crowds, but he saw them as scattered crowds. And he didn't just see them as crowds, he saw them as sheep. He, of course, is the great shepherd, and the Greek word for shepherd in the New Testament is exactly the same word for pastor. And Jesus had a pastoral heart, and he looked at this crowd, and he said, you know what, I'm not exalting. I haven't made it in the ministry. My greatest concern is that this multitude would be properly discipled, mentored, and cared for. This is not the pinnacle of my ministry. And he turned and called to him his twelve and gave them authority. You see, this was Jesus's strategy. We looked last week at the beginnings of Jesus's ministry, didn't we? I don't want to recap too much, but it is important. And how, especially in John's Gospel, we see that, that as soon as Jesus came on the scene, even before ministering to the multitudes, he was looking. He was aware. He was calling men to leave their nets and follow him. And as people came to him, it took about, probably scholars think, about a year for his 12 to be fully formed. He was ministering to other people, of course, but he had a strategy. In that great prayer of John 17 that we finished on, he, his prayer was about his 12, primarily, in John 17. 
He was saying, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those you gave me. And those that you gave me, not one have I lost except the one destined to be lost. I've not lost one, Father. And I'm praying that just as you sanctified me and separated me for ministry, that you would do that with them. And just as we are one, I pray that you will do that with them. He's speaking about his 12, and then he goes on, and I pray it not just for them, but for those that will hear their word. He was praying for his 12 and the disciples that they would have. What an incredible prayer that shows near the end of Jesus' ministry, his focus and strategy on concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Men were his method for winning the world. And we could say people. So when I talk about the men and the 12 men, you, you ladies that are doing such a great job in sales, you're very much far ahead of us. We're learning from you in many respects. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? So people were his method of winning the world. He hadn't got his eyes off the multitudes. When you look at Jesus' strategy, it wasn't small is beautiful. You know, I, I've come across over the years a small mentality in certain ministers where where maybe it's envy, maybe they don't like larger crowds, or, or maybe they somehow feel that because they haven't got larger crowds that somehow maybe they're not as, uh, as important. To, I don't know what it is, but they have this small mentality. They, they don't believe in growth or, multi or multiplication or fruitfulness. They're not seeking God for it. They're happy. They're, they're like when Lewis used to say, instead of being fishers of men, they're keepers of aquariums. Now, I've got a lovely goldfish bowl, and I've got two fish in it. And I don't think they're going to multiply because they're two different fish. And they're just they're sitting in this controlled, contrived, contained environment. But Jesus said, I will make you fishes of men. In fact, get into the deep. That's where I want you. So Jesus' focus on the small group, the 12, was, it wasn't just him and 12 men. No, there was a strategy. He wanted multiplication. He wanted to reach the world. And it's amazing how the early church had this pattern of small group as well as multitudes. I'll just remind you of Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, which I believe is a pattern for the church today. I really do. I believe we need to get back to it. And it's one of my passions that we should see this again. Acts, straight after revival hits. What do they do? How do they form the church? Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. Then those who gladly received his word, Peter's word, were baptized and that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's multiplication. Well, what did they do? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. And sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as any had need. So continuing daily, where? In one accord in the temple, it's the larger meetings, and breaking bread from house 
to house. They ate their food with gladness, simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. You see, right from the beginning, there was a place for the smaller disciples group. It wasn't just see you at the temple court. Oh, the temple court, what's the seating capacity? Oh, about five or six thousand. Oh, we might need to do some fundraising for a, a bigger venue and a bigger campus. They had the five or six thousand or whatever it, whatever it was. They had those meetings. They were essential to hear the apostolic anointing and the fivefold ministry. It was essential for that ministry to get to the people. But at the same time, daily, daily they were breaking bread. Daily they were having communion. Daily they were working out the apostles' doctrine. It wasn't, listen to the apostles' doctrine. Oh, that was wonderful. What a wonderful Sunday morning meeting. See you at the next apostles' doctrine, next Sunday morning meeting. They were out there talking about it, about what they'd heard, about the testimonies, about the teaching. And they were, they were teaching one another. So this had got deep into the understanding of the apostles. You see, the initial object of Jesus' plan was to enlist men who could bear witness to his life and carry on his work after his return to the Father. Such a visionary. So much of what Jesus was doing was for the future. It wasn't about, really, just his three years. He was looking to the future. I mean... As, as I said, if Jesus had been a mega minister, a mega pastor of a mega church, then he'd have lived for the three years. He'd have gathered the crowds as much as he could and put on a show, but he didn't. In fact, sometimes he would dismiss the crowds. He wanted something that was able, or some people that were able to carry and multiply his ministry in the past. I mentioned last week that, you know, really, Jesus didn't leave a very big church when he left. I mean, he had thousands and touched lives of thousands and thousands and thousands of people following him all around, and he ministered to the multitudes. Don't get me wrong, but where were the multitudes after Jesus had been raised from the dead? I mean, when he appeared, um, those, I think it's ten or so times, uh, he didn't appear. Again, you'd think if Jesus was a mega, a mega ministry today, if he was going to appear, as he did about ten times, why didn't he appear to Caesar? Why didn't he appear, bang, right in the middle of the temple, here I am. Why didn't he do these things? Well, it reminds me a little bit about the devil saying, why don't you fall off the pinnacle of the temple and, and make a big show? Why did he appear? Yes, I know, at one time to a, a number of a hundred, but mainly to the twelve he was appearing to them. It's because he understood the fickleness of an undiscipled crowd and he wanted to do it properly. He wanted his work to continue. I mean, on the day of Pentecost, the congregation had dwindled from maybe about 500 to 120. I mean, you know, tarry in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power on high. Well, that's all right the first couple of days, tarrying. But after, the three, you know, after a week or so, what? Yeah, prayer meeting, what? When? Same time, same place. What? Tonight, yeah. Uh, what about tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow night. Whew, oh, I don't know about this. I mean, uh, the goosebumps have worked, were, they've gone since that great appearance of Jesus. I don't know about this. And by the time the day of Pentecost, there was only 120 of them. And thank God they were in one accord. Jesus, in the end, with all those multitudes, the remnant, 
was 120 people. But when the Holy Spirit fell, that multiplied very quickly. But you know what? Despite those men, the apostles that still had a lot to learn and still had their faults and their failures, they were ready. They were ready. They were formed. And when those 3,000 people got saved, they didn't get lost in some sort of, where are they? But they were meeting in the big meetings and they were multiplying in small groups. Have you ever thought that if God sends revival and multitudes start coming that we've been praying for for years, wouldn't it be great to have the multitudes, but do we have the wineskin to disciple them? We believe that we do. We believe that as we multiply, we can multiply ourselves. We, we believe we can do this. We believe that we can have the big and the small. We believe that we can focus like Jesus on, on such things. Now, these people that Jesus selected, often there's, I don't need to go too much in detail, I mentioned it last week, but these people, these men that Jesus selected, you often hear in sermons, they weren't the sort of people that we perhaps would select. First of all, they hadn't come from the ministerial seminaries of the day or the Bible colleges of the day. They hadn't come from the great priestly families or the great scholarly families. Uh, they, they hadn't come, many of them, from great upstanding religious backgrounds. Some of them were tax gatherers, for instance, fishermen. And it's amazing that when Jesus called these men, they were, well, they were a product of their generation in many ways. They were impulsive, easily offended, prejudiced. But the one thing about these men was that they were hungry for God. I mean, some of them had been followers of the John the Baptist revival. And John pointed them in the right direction. They were eager to learn John chapter 6, 666, it's, it's the only good 66 that's in the, in the Bible. John chapter 6 and verse 66. The crowds are getting offended. Jesus didn't just preach a message to keep the crowds. Sometimes there's a temptation in the ministry. There is a temptation to preach crowd-pleasing messages. Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasing a crowd. I hope you go away a little bit pleased that you turned up for the five o'clock teaching service at the end. I'm not, you know, we're not going to go around and just teach things that you don't like. And, and, but Jesus, when he began to teach deeper things, and people were offended, and like I said, we need to preach the whole counsel of God. And so sometimes when we teach at the 2.30 service or the 5 o'clock series, it's one of those series that loads of people want to attend and you get a, a higher uh, group coming because it's an uh, ice cream subject. But what do we do? Do we then take the other subjects and put them aside for the sake of a few more bums on seats? No, we don't. That's not discipleship, is it? What we need to do is, is grow a people, and I believe we are, that want to hear the deep things of God. Want the whole counsel of God. Well, anyway, here in chapter 6, verse uh, 66, they're offended. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go away? And Peter said, where shall we go? You have the works of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That, 
they'd grasped something about him. They understood, even though they didn't understand many things, they understood one thing, they understood who he was. They were eager to, to, to be with him. They were teachable. Do you know, Jesus can use anyone who is willing to learn. If you're not willing to learn or be taught by Jesus or by others, you can't be used by him. You, you, you're just, you're just that you're stagnant. Uh, the thing over my 22, 23 years of ministry here at Kensington Temple, seen many things, but one of the things that grieves me the most is somebody that is unwilling to be taught. And one of the things I fear most is that I will come into a place where I'm unwilling to be taught. Because when you're unwilling to be taught, when you think you know it all, you're finished. You cease to grow. You cease to mature. All we need at Kensington Temple, whatever mess you may or may not be in, whatever, if you've got a teachable heart, you'll grow. We can use you. God can use you. No matter what scenario you face, if you've, if you've got a teachable heart, and these men had teachable hearts, this was a group of people small enough to work personally and effectively with. And Jesus, when he brought his disciples to him and he taught them, his focus was on, and this is one of the principles in the book, association. He called them to be with them. Having called them to him, he made a practice of being with them. And he let them follow with them. And their following of them was the training. He didn't set up a Bible school. We have a Bible school, thank God for it. He didn't set up a seminary. It, it wasn't one of the formal schools. There were formal discipleship type schools, Hillel and Gamaliel. And, and you would go into these formal schools and there was membership classes and there would be formalities and you'd be, be able to identify sometimes by dress code what school was somebody, somebody was from or the formalities that they had or the rituals that they had. But Jesus didn't do that. Uh, he, his own school was being close to him. Jesus was the school and Jesus was to the curriculum. To know was to be with him. If you wanted to know the Lord, if you want to learn from him, if you wanted to be in his school, you needed to be with him. He didn't have any distance learning schemes. I'm all for distinct learning. We have distinct distance learning. Hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. You, you, you needed, these 12, they needed to be with him. These were the ones. And it was when they were with him that they, they, they began to, to know. Remember John 14, verse 5. How do we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the training was getting close to a person. And, and, and this teaches us something. You know, you can read about Jesus. You can hear sermons about Jesus. You can do theology degrees about Jesus. But you really need to know Jesus. And this is, thank God we can be in his presence by the Holy Spirit. Thank God we can spend time with him. I mean, one of the good things is that when he went away, everybody has access to Jesus. Not just the 12 had that special access and, and the inner three, his core three associates, Peter, James, and John, who had even deeper access to him. They were there, really, as a support system for him. 
But thank God when he poured out the Spirit, now all of us, through the Spirit, we can take the teaching of Jesus that mostly he gave to his 12, and we can be in the presence of Jesus as we study about Jesus. And when we hear the preaching of God's Word or the teaching of God's Word, it's not just information, but the Holy Spirit can come and and can make that information as fresh as the day it first came out of those graced lips of Jesus himself. This is why it's so important for us to understand that if we want to be disciples of Jesus, the first person we need to hang around with is Jesus. And that's why partnership and fellowship with the Holy Spirit is so important. But remember, the word fellowship, koinonia, it's not like we use sometimes in church, she's at services, and we say, oh, will you be staying after the service for some tea and fellowship? And what we mean is some tea and some nice getting to know. There's nothing wrong. Koinonia is fellowship with a purpose. A purpose. And so when we fellowship with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, I know in one sense it's its own purpose just to minister to him, but there is also a deeper purpose. When Jesus called the twelve, It wasn't some sort of glee club. It wasn't some sort of buddy-buddy system. They were expected to learn. They were expected to grow. In fact, Jesus could be very short with his disciples. Very short with them. Very short. He's like, are you so hard-hearted? Are you so blind? Are you so... Don't you yet understand? Peter, you're Satan. I mean, he could be tough with them. It, It wasn't just some affirmation club where you like me and we like you, we say nice things about each other and, and, and you know, we're the in crowd. Not, not at all. Those disciples, much was given to them. And you know in church history, much was expected of them. Oh, can we sit at your right hand? You can't drink the cup I'm about to drink. Yes, we can. Okay, you will. And so this closeness to Jesus, but also remember that we're in the body of Christ It's not just you and Jesus. But God has put into the church others to disciple us. We should be discipled by someone. And we should also be discipling others. This is the principle of the early church. Communion, not just with God, but with one another on a a daily basis. Finding the Lord in other people's lives. Raising up disciples. You see, Jesus did not, I know I'm saying this, it's so important. He wasn't impressed by the crowds. He had great concern for the crowds. He spent time with the twelve for the multitudes that were to come. But he wasn't impressed by the crowds. John chapter 2. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. And that was a a lot. When they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of a man for he knew what was in a man. He, he knew the superficiality of popular support. He wasn't there to play 
to the galleries. Now, this is a deep, penetrating insight for us today. Because we would like to see the multitudes, because every you know, multitudes are made of individuals, and Jesus understood that multitudes were made of individuals. But the question is, what would the multitudes do to us if we had them? If suddenly God put his hand on one or other of us, and we began personally to see the multitudes, and God graced the message on our lips, and, and all of a sudden, hundreds and thousands of people, how would that change us? What would be the relationship between us and those mighty crowds? And what would that reveal in our hearts? You know, one of the worst things that can happen to somebody is that they are successful before they're ready. One of the worst things, success in whatever sphere of life, especially in the ministry, if success comes to you too soon, it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to you and you are on a course of misery. Misery, because you, you can't handle it. But Jesus could handle the crowds. Why? Because he didn't put his trust in the crowds. What he wanted to do was get down to the individual. Get down to the smaller group. Get down to the discipling. That's where his heart was. This is why we see many times Jesus would do a great miracle and he'd say, don't tell anybody. <laughs> Can you imagine if we did that? So-and-so got healed. What, in the hospital of cancer? Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Let's put it in revival times. Let's make a doctrine, uh, doc documentary about it. And Jesus is like, shh, I know, I know. And then what did they normally do? Go and tell everybody about it. And he had to run away from the crowds. Sometimes we call this, especially when we look at the Gospel of Mark, brings this out very powerfully, this almost like a messianic secret at times. He's ministering to the multitudes, but he's shh, quiet, quiet. What an incredible attitude to, to do that, to keep things quiet. We're charismatics, we're Pentecostals. We blow our trumpets when nothing happens. If nothing's happening, we pretend it is. We talk it up, we talk it up, we, met, we tell it, it's just round the corner, remember? It's just round the corner, 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 and we're going round in circles. And we don't even need God, we'll, we'll make, hey, if God's not making it happen, we'll make it happen, I tell you what. God was making it happen, and Jesus was going, shh, hey, just take it easy. That was for you. I didn't do that for the crowds. I did that because I have compassion on you. If I want to get the crowds, that's fine, but this was for you and your family. This was for you and your healing. This was for you. Don't go shedding it abroad because sometimes the crowds got in Jesus' way. And he said, come along, let's, let's cross over, let's get in the boat. They were, they'll wake up in the morning, they won't even know where we've gone. Oh yeah, they were there by the time they got round, waiting for them. Come away for a while, rest. The focus on his twelve. You don't know who God has destined you to disciple. You don't know the knock-on effects in history of the people that you are around right now and who those people will affect and who those people will affect. Jesus was looking at the 12 and he had such faith because, as like I said last week, 
If, if you were presented with your new cell group, hello, we've got a new cell group for you to look after at Kensington Temple. And uh, we've got the names and we'd like you to do the follow-up. And they're all said they'll attend your first cell meeting and gathering. And if the 12 apostles turned up, you'd resign from the ministry straight away. Now, that's, that's if you had a chance to get out without there being some sort of brawl started. Or somebody nicking some money out of your wardrobe, Judas. You'd be like... But Jesus had great faith, not just in them. In fact, he rested, if I can put it this way, maybe it's a bit over the top, but I want to make the point. He rested his whole ministry on them, on these men. It was like everything I've come to do, everything I'm doing, I'm going to die now. It's time for me to be glorified. And I'm going to die. And and then I'm going to, it's over to you. It's down to you. I've invested in you. And I'm believing that, that you're going to take it to the next level. And people wanted Jesus to show himself openly. On the transfiguration, the transfiguration when he took his three close associates, he said, now listen, what you've seen, shh, until I've been resurrected. I don't want the attention. It's going to get in the way of my father's strategy. In John chapter 7, Verse 2, we, we, we get this again. And, and the reason I'm, I'm focusing on the multitudes and the discipling is because I really want us to understand Jesus' strategy before we get to the next, next week, the next principle of his discipling, which is consecration. John 7, verse 2. It was the feast. Now, the Jew... The Jews' feast of the tabernacles were at his hand. It was at hand, John 7, 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may, may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. And then Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. In other words, show yourself. He said, no, I'm not going to show myself. It wasn't a case of mass recruitment. Jesus was not trying to impress the crowds. What was he trying to do? Usher in the kingdom of God. That's what he came to do, to bring the kingdom of God, to bring kingdom of God power and kingdom of God principles and the presence of the kingdom of God. And that's why he wanted to work these principles into his apostles so that when the Holy Spirit came and revival was poured out, the converts would have competent men of God who could lead them protect them, and bear witness to them of what they had seen, heard, and touched pertaining to the word of God. I quote from um, Robert Coleman's book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. A few people so dedicated... In time will shake the world for God. Victory is never won by the multitudes. Everything that is done with the few is for the salvation of the multitudes. 
You even see this sometimes, this principle in, in the world. I mean, the devil is a counterfeiter, so sometimes you can see demonic counterfeits. For example, if you look at the rise of communism, or if you look at the rise of Adolf Hitler's Nazi party, you know, the core group that was there at the beginning was the same core group that was there at the end. I mean, it's fascinating to see right at the beginning, uh, right at the beginning in Germany, when Hitler was a nobody, there was a few core men that he called to him. And those few that were with him when there were nobody were also there at the end when he'd taken on most of Europe. What was it? it, it it's, it's passionate disciples. And that's a counterfeit example of it. But if you look at the great revivals as well, certainly of this nation, and you dig down, you also find that it starts with a passionate group of small, usually small groups and a small number of people. And then it grows. The, the, great, the greatness of the Methodist move of God, at least the first and then the primitive Methodist that came later, was their small groups that contained the wine. The Methodist groups, the method, the groups that contained it were springing up all over the country, the Salvation Army, the same. And so when we look at this and we, we come to a conclusion today, and we see Jesus' strategy of spending his time with the twelve. We're not saying that the multitudes were not important to him. He ministered to the multitudes. He ministered to many groups. He ministered to individuals. He ministered to families. He ministered to sinners. He ministered to thousands. But when you look at Jesus' heart, it was mentoring people for the future. And that's what we're attempting to do. We're attempting to grow ourselves. We never cease to learn. We never cease to be a disciple. We must grow. There's so much the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. And you know, most of what he wants to do in our lives will come through the impact and contact with others. And at the same time, there are people that are looking for us to pastor and to look after. And this is God's plan. It's not just the multitudes and it's not just the small groups. It's both and. We want to disciple the multitudes. God is getting us ready, I believe, in our lives and in our ministries so that should he pour out his spirit as he did on the day of the Pentecost, that uh, we, won't, we won't lose one. That they'll all be, in the terms of our cell vision, consolidated. They'll all be encountered. They'll all be living free with the Lord. They'll all be mastering leadership principles. And they'll all be not just looking ahead of them to see who's leading them, but looking behind them to see who's following them. Next week, we're going to look at one of the great principles of Jesus' mentoring and teaching his disciples, the principle of consecration and separation to the things of God and what God is speaking to us today about that. God bless you. Don't forget the book if you want to go a little bit more in detail with it.